Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Hello and welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie, brought to you by Killer Podcasts, an evergreen podcasts network. I'm the titular Sean. And I'm the very titular Carrie. It's the show that takes you inside the unbelievable, the unexplainable, the macabre, and the bizarre, and tries to find an answer. Hello, Caroline. Hi. Uh, listener, as you will know from the title of this episode and uh, from listening to last week's episode, hopefully, uh, this is the second in a three-parter, I believe, Carrie, right? Three we're doing? Yes. Three-parter on the maiden voyage and inevitable sinking of the RMS Titanic. Yeah. And so, listener, if you didn't, for some reason, listen to last week's episode, um, it may give you some much-needed context for the um, building and the hype around this uh, magnificent ship, some of its uh, very swanky um, you know, amenities and supposed safety features. Uh, all of that leading to what we know is a very unfortunate end that we are going to get into in this episode. So, Caroline, where do we begin? All right. Well, welcome back, everyone. Uh, Sean and I now are thankfully on the other end of our second bout of COVID. Uh, we would very much not recommend the experience if you can avoid it, for sure. Um, but happily, it didn't end up delaying this new episode, though, if we sound a little raspy, that's why. Yeah, Carrie's maybe two days behind me on this infection that I mm. definitely gave her. You so certainly did. Just a little rasp left. <laughs> so now we can plunge right in, uh, so to speak, to the day and night of April 14th to 15th, 1912, when the Ship of Dreams, the RMS Titanic, experienced its last day afloat and its final tragic night. So when we, when we left off last week, the Titanic was finally heading out to the broader Atlantic Ocean to make its crossing to America with plans to arrive at New York's Pier 59 on the morning of April 17th. These first few days of the voyage passed pretty much without incident. Uh, a fire had begun in one of the Titanic's coal bunkers about 10 days before the ship's departure and um, just continued to burn into the voyage. But What? Yeah. So the, the, it, hadn't, it was still happening as mm -hmm. they left. Yeah, it was like a Centralia type of thing, just always brewing under the surface. Oh, I guess this is just like this now and then. <laughs> but the passengers were unaware, and this was actually a pretty common occurrence on steamships of the time because of their abundant use of coal. The fire itself was finally extinguished on the 14th, but some believe that the damage inflicted on the ship's bulkhead by this fire may have played a key role in the ship's eventual fate. Oh, more on that last week, but I think we've laid out plenty of... Uh, issues with the flooding <sighs> compartments below that already uh, set the stage for disaster. Yes. And it's uh, also true that the Titanic continued receiving warnings from other ships telling of drifting ice in the area. Um, 
this was kind of the area of the Grand Banks of Newfoundland, but they were generally ignored by Captain E.J. Smith with the ship continuing to sail full speed, which was standard practice at the time. Uh, Carrie, I might be getting ahead of myself, but just to give you an idea, to clue you and the listener in on something, I'll be watching like a hawk uh, on this uh, pass through this story. In the movie, the, the captain, and I feel like in all tellings that I've seen, the captain gets painted with a pretty heroic mm-hmm. um, light going down with the ship and all that. Um, so I'm, I'm just curious to what degree he holds some of the blame here as well. I think the movie depicts it pretty close. Because he's constantly going, we should have more lifeboats. We shouldn't be going faster. No. Yeah. Not really. Don't they say like... He's a little uneasy about going faster. Um, But, you know, he just, he follows his orders. And um, he's not necessarily the most prepared for an emergency situation like this. He's Murtaugh on his way out. Yes, exactly. He's too old for this shit. And, um, you know, he hasn't really dealt with this kind of thing before. So, you know, I mean, who who would be ready for this kind of thing? If you had been the captain of a, of a terrible, tragic sinking ship, would you get hired to be the captain of the Titanic? I don't know. Well, he did, and he was. Well, after, yes. No, you gave us a previous disaster that he had captained right before Well, yeah, this I mean, it hadn't sunk, but it had been damaged. But what he, the decisions he made, first of all, they were coming from above. And then second of all, he was going pretty solidly with the... Conventional wisdom? Yeah, the, the general wisdom at the time. Um, it was believed that ice posed little danger to large vessels. And of course, this was the largest ones. Because some ships had even experienced head-on collisions with ice before without disaster. The SS Crown Prince Wilhelm rammed an iceberg in 1907. Like when you say rammed, it sounds like it was on head purpose. on, head on. Um, but it was still co- able to complete her voyage, so it was still even afloat. At the time, Captain Smith himself had stated that he quote could not imagine any condition which would cause a ship to founder. Modern shipbuilding has gone beyond that. Wow! So, Famous last words. Yeah, and. Uh, this whole story is a case study in famous last words and hubris. Well, he also happened to cancel a scheduled lifeboat drill the morning of April 14th as well. And I do want to put in that this isn't just due to negligence. Um, it was a Sunday morning, so there are Sunday services. He's probably not wanting to interrupt. And the engines, because this was the first time the ship was out, were still being broken in. And it was felt that stopping them completely mid-ocean to drill dropping and retrieving lifeboats would be detrimental to the machinery. So he's trying to make informed decisions, I think, based on what he knows and what he's being told. And they also, you said the conventional wisdom, last week you said the conventional wisdom also, um, was that the only point of these lifeboats was to ferry passengers yes. to a nearby ship. So Yes, there's no, there's no ever like assumption that the, the ship's going to fully sink. Um, so what were the passengers up to on the final full day of the voyage, still blissfully unaware of the Titanic's and their fate? So some of this following information comes from a video on the Titanic Honor and Glory YouTube page. But basically, 
as I said, April 14th was a Sunday, so that morning Christian services were held throughout the ship, as well as Protestant services in all three classes and Catholic services in the second and third classes. At this point, they were about 1,500 miles from Ireland and well into their trip, so people are kind of getting to know each other. This Sunday marked the general halfway point between leaving land and arriving in New York, so it was a big social day on the voyage. In the evening, a hymn service was held in the second-class dining room um, by Reverend Carter, as well as an extended card game being held in the first-class smoke room. And that was uh, the room was left open a bit past closing due to the game. Several families were having dinner parties. Do you know when closing would normally have been? I think by 11, but it was open when the ship struck the iceberg. So, um, Several families were having dinner parties, including the first class passengers, the Wideners, who had Captain Smith himself as the honored guest at their supper in the a la carte restaurant. So he was not behind the wheel when the ship hits the ice. No, and the captain is is not always behind the wheel. Like, it it rotates between officers. Uh, And Sean, last time you asked what the last meals on the Titanic were, and we do have that information. So back in 2012, an original menu from the last first-class luncheon on the Titanic was sold at auction for around $150,000. A woman named Mrs. Ruth Dodge had placed it in her purse that final day and forgotten all about it until her survival of the sinking. So it's the only one that was left from that luncheon. From that menu, we can see what the last first-class lunch was, provided in four courses, appetizers, grilled items, buffet, and cheese. And there were 40 total options that could be chosen from the menu. That's a big, that's like a Chili's menu. Yes. This included chicken a la Maryland, corned beef, vegetables, dumplings, grilled mutton chops, a variety of potatoes, custard pudding, apple meringue, smoked sardines, veal and ham pie, corned ox tongue, and a variety of cheeses. And that's just lunch. Mm. Now... It's become kind of a popular upscale dinner party theme to recreate the fan, uh, the final first class dinner on the Titanic. And uh, our friend Krenny even hosted one of these nights himself a few years ago. Mrs. Walter Douglas, a survivor and first class passenger, recounted, quote, We dined the last night in the Ritz restaurant. It was the last word in luxury. The tables were gay with pink roses and white daisies, the women in their beautiful shimmering gowns of satin and silk, the men immaculate and well-groomed, the stringed orchestra playing music from Puccini and Tchaikovsky. The food was superb. Caviar, lobster, quail from Egypt, plover's eggs, and hothouse grapes and fresh peaches. The night was cold and clear, the sea like glass. According to the book Last Dinner on the Titanic, executive chef Rousseau prepared a 10-course menu that Sunday evening for the ship's VIPs, including oysters, cream of barley soup, poached salmon with mousseline sauce, filet mignon, lamb with mint sauce, roast duckling. Mousseline sauce must have really gone out of uh, uh, fashion in the 30s, you would think. Cold asparagus vinaigrette, pâté de foie gras, punch romaine, and desserts including Waldorf pudding and peaches in chartreuse jelly. And I think we saw a video recently of someone recreating some of these desserts that we had never heard of. Yeah, he did the peaches, didn't he? That was Tasting History on YouTube. I think so, yeah. 
Each course was paired with wines. So if you went whole hog, so to speak, you weren't only eating 10 courses, but drinking at least 10 glasses of wine and likely enjoying the offered spirits and cigars post supper. Now that is like a dinner at the aforementioned Sean Crenny's house. <laughs> Wild. The yeah. glass of wine with each of the oh 12 courses or whatever. Mm-hmm. Captain Smith enjoyed the dinner party and retired early, first checking on things on the bridge and speaking with second officer Charles Lighttoller, who was on watch at the time. Everything looked quite clear and the water was quite calm, so conditions were seen to basically be perfect for that night's sailing. Smith, sol- Smith told Lighttoller to keep on course and at speed, and if conditions were to change, to notify him at his cabin. All standard. Soon after this, Lytoler... So he's done with his dinner party at this point. Yes, but he's going to bed. Uh, And soon after this, Lytoler was relieved from his watch by First Officer William Murdoch at 10 p.m. And now his watch has ended. (laughs) And so Murdoch assumed command of the ship. Around this time, the steamship Misaba sent an ice warning reporting a large number of icebergs and an ice field directly in the Titanic's path, which was... One question about this. Mm -hmm. If the conventional wisdom is everybody ignores these warnings, ice doesn't pose any danger to ships like this, why do you even send a warning out? I don't know. Politeness, I guess. Or like, wow, this is this is crazier than we thought. Just, you know, heads up. Looking a little choppy. Mm -hmm. I think it's mostly probably a heads up sort of thing. This uh, warning was intercepted by wireless operator Jack Phillips as he communicated with Cape Race, Newfoundland. This particular message was one of the most important warnings Titanic received, but was never delivered to the bridge. And of course, this is all, you know, well in hindsight sort of stuff. Second officer Charles Lightoller, who I believe is the highest officer to have survived, uh, he reported of the warning in his autobiography. Quote, Felix explained when I said that I did not recollect any Masaba report. I just put the message under a paperweight at my elbow just until I squared up what I was doing before sending it to the bridge. That delay proved fatal and was the main contributory cause of the loss of that magnificent ship and hundreds of lives. Had I, as officer of the watch or the captain, become aware of the peril lying so close ahead and not instantly slowed down or stopped, we would have been guilty of culpable and criminal negligence. So he kind of lays it on Phillips a little bit. Well, yeah, because that guy should have... Yeah. I mean, by... But I think this warning didn't have, like, there's like a, a code at the beginning that's like, this is very important, you need to bring this right to the bridge, and it didn't have that. So he's probably just, just following orders. Um, just before 11 p.m., Phillips was interrupted in his communications again by the SS Californian, which was heading from London to Boston, And it warned the bigger ship that the Californian was now stopped and surrounded by ice. Unfortunately, because the telegraph machines had been down for a period on the Titanic for the last couple days, Phillips was backlogged with hundreds of messages he had to get out to make up for lost time and was already exhausted from barely sleeping the last two days. So he told the Californian's wireless operator, Cyril Evans, quote, keep out, shut up, I'm working Cape Race. Wow, that's a quote. Yeah, referring to the personal messages he was sending to passengers, for passengers. From here on out, um, things are going to get very sad. (laughs) So uh, everyone, please keep that in mind. This happened a long time ago, but it's a real thing that happened to real people. And and again, what I always kind of meditate on with this story is is um how 
awful it would be to be there just knowing at a certain point that you're gonna probably die in the next hour. Yeah, the situation is horrific. I mean, I get pretty choked up reading about and discussing some of these stories. Um, So yeah, just fair warning. And going forward, I'll mostly be quoting from the book A Night to Remember by Walter Lord, which contains accounts from dozens of Titanic survivors. So unless I say otherwise, direct quotes come from there. At 11.40 p.m., lookouts Frederick Fleet and Reginald Lee were standing in the crow's nest of the ship, and it was a moonless night, which unfortunately made it harder to see. There was also the fact that the ocean looked like polished glass, um, which, though calm seas were beneficial to sailing as a whole, it would also make it more difficult to see any objects in the water because there would be no water breaking against it. So it's very dark and very still. And even, like, if you see a chunk of ice, you can't really tell where it starts and where the reflection yeah. kind of begins in the water. Oh, well, yeah. Keep in mind, icebergs, there's a lot more going on underneath the water than even above the water. As a night to remember recounts, quote, suddenly Fleet saw something directly ahead, even darker than the darkness. At first, it was, a, it was small, about the size he thought of two tables put together. But every second, it grew larger and larger. Quickly, Fleet banged the crow's nest bell three times, the warning of danger ahead. At the same time, he lifted the phone and rang the bridge. What did you see? asked a calm voice at the other end. Iceberg right ahead, replied Fleet. Thank you, acknowledged the voice with curiously detached courtesy. Nothing more was said. So Fleet had spoken with 6th officer, officer James Moody, who relayed the message to Murdoch. Um, and since he was in command, he ordered the ship's course be changed. It's generally believed that at this point he, are, he ordered hard a starboard to attempt to turn the ship's direction to port or basically the opposite side of the vessel. It took 30 seconds for the steam-powered steering mechanism to turn and the center propeller positioned directly in front of the ship's rudder was stopped. So had Murdoch turned the ship while maintaining her forward speed, keeping the propeller going, Titanic might have missed the iceberg with feet to spare. It's still slightly unclear what happened. Um, there's evidence that Murdoch simply signaled the engine room to stop, not reverse, and lead fireman Frederick Barrett testified that the stoplight came on. But even that order was not executed before the collision. They had very limited time. Because stopping the ship would also take... Despite those brakes, yes. they had to test twice before they left or whatever. Um, the full reverse brakes. Um, yeah, stopping this thing or turning it is going to be... Mm-hmm. It's going to take a minute. Not quick. Yeah. For the next 37 seconds, the lookouts stared at the oncoming iceberg, bracing themselves for a crash. And suddenly, Titanic's heading changed just in time to avoid a head-on collision. And the officers became relieved but it wasn't fast enough to avoid striking the iceberg entirely. And some people think that if they had just struck it head on, none of this would have happened. Because what you end up with now is a scrape down the side of the boat, right? Yes. So an underwater section of ice carved down the starboard side of the ship, which is the right-hand side, for about seven seconds with chunks of ice from the berg breaking off and falling onto the decks. Any descriptions of that sound? Yes. Um... Let's see, Major Arthur Godfrey Puchin thought a heavy wave had collided with the ship. 
Steward James Johnson thought it was a thrown propeller blade. Lady Cosmo Duff Gordon noted that it felt as though someone had drawn a giant finger along the side of the ship. She's the closest. Yeah, a lot of people think it felt like it was like ripping fabric. That's what it kind of sounded like. Now, the crew didn't, didn't know this at the time, but five watertight compartments were ripped open in this contact with the iceberg, as well as a small bit of a sixth. And if, what was it in the front of the ship, five could fill, right? And it would be okay? Uh, any certain amount of the first five, or the, specifically the first four. It was too many too many compartments uh were full right now yeah oh oh, yeah and if it was open if it was in the stern then it would be like if three like if more than three of them flooded you were in trouble yes uh j bruce ismay managing director of white star line awoke with a jolt in his suite on b deck he was sure that he had felt the ship strike something captain smith himself rushed to the bridge from his own cabin ordering the emergency doors closed of the watertight compartments which had already been shut Uh, As written in A Night to Remember, quote, down in boiler room number six, fireman Fred Barrett had been talking to second engineer James Hesketh when the warning bell sounded and the light flashed above the watertight door leading to the stern. I must not understand these underwater, under the waterline, like emergency compartments. Mm -hmm. Why would they have doors that can be opened opened and closed? Why would they be sitting there open? I don't know. Uh, There was a quick shout of warning, an ear-splitting crash, and the whole starboard side of the ship seemed to give way. The sea cascaded in, swirling about the pipes and valves, and the two men leaped through the door as it slammed down behind them. So this is that scene that upset poor young Caroline so badly. With all uh, all all the guys in the steam room dying. Yes, all the doors being closed. About 10 miles away, 3rd Officer Charles Victor Groves was standing on the bridge of the aforementioned Californian, watching the Titanic pass in the distance when suddenly the other ship stopped at about 11.40 p.m. It appeared that the deck lights had also been extinguished, which was a typical action by crew to encourage passengers to head to sleep. (laughs) But in reality, the lights were still on, but had appeared to go out because the Titanic had veered sharply to port, so he he couldn't see the side lights anymore. Oh, okay. This is uh, how far away was this ship? Ten miles. So close enough to help. It was ten miles away the whole night. We'll get there. It's it's fucked up. As if nothing had happened, Frederick Fleet resumed his watch, and many of the passengers and crew relaxed from the tense moment. Some asked crew members what the jolt was or why they had stopped. Other passengers began to explore for an answer, curious as to what had happened. However, they couldn't really figure it out just from the deck area, and it was so bitterly cold outside that most people retreated back inside after a cursory look. Quote, John Jacob Astor seemed equally unperturbed. Returning to his suite after going up to investigate, he explained to Mrs. Astor that the ship had struck ice, but it didn't look serious. He was very calm, and Mrs. Astor wasn't a bit alarmed. Some passengers, including those from steerage who had finally made it to upper deck, began throwing the ice at each other and kicking bits around. For, for funsies? Mm-hmm. But it wasn't all fun and games. At 11.50 p.m., just 10 minutes after the collision, crewmen began to be roused by the sound of rushing water pouring into their passageways and compartments. And remember, they're some of the lowest decks on the ship. I think three decks at the bottom were not accessible to passengers? Yeah, something like that. I mean, plus cargo. 
third-class passenger Carl Johnson, who was in the third compartment aft, the lowest in the ship and the closest to the bow or front of the boat, saw water seeping into his cabin and began to dress to head up to the deck. The mailroom soon filled with water and quickly made its way to uh, the water quickly made its way to F deck, then began to fill the boiler rooms, forcing the workers to try and flee up the escape ladders as the watertight doors closed. Presumably letters floating around in it as it rushes down the, the Yeah, hall. so they tried the, the mail workers heaved these like 200 bags of letters or whatever it was up the stairs to the sorting room. And then the water filled up there and they were like, well, fuck it. This isn't, this isn't going to work. We're not going to save these letters. And they, you know, left. Fourth officer Boxall went on a fast inspection of the ship under captain's orders, returning minutes later to say there was no sign of damage that he had seen. Look again, buddy. Well, yeah. I mean, he'd only been a few minutes and it took a while to get around the ship. So he probably just took a really cursory look. Uh, But he did go as far forward in steerage as he could. When, when, (laughs) When we talk about like how people got lost on the Titanic till they'd been working on it for a couple weeks and um, just think about like Star Wars when you see people getting around on like (laughs) like a Star Destroyer or the Death Star. Mm -hmm. Like it would take hours to get wherever you need to go. Absolutely. Boxall was then sent to retrieve Thomas Andrews, the ship's carpenter. Another carpenter, Jay Hutchinson, was rushing up along with mail desk, mail clerk Iago Smith. Both men had bad news. Uh, Water was coming in fast from where they came from, and the mail hold was already full. Right after this, Ismay arrived to the bridge and Smith broke the news to him about the iceberg. Ismay then asked, do you think the ship is seriously damaged? Smith paused, then slowly responded, I'm afraid she is. At this point, passengers were still unsure what was going on. Many of them reasoned that things were under control, while still others overheard snippets of crew conversation that prompted them to dress and go to the upper deck immediately. Some began to notice that the ship seemed to be listing slightly, which was concerning since the boat was stopped and the waters were calm, so there should be nothing tilting it over. Unless, say, there's a bunch of water in one side of the ship. Meanwhile, Andrews and Captain Smith were hurriedly figuring out the extent of the damage, putting together the little information they'd been able to collect. There was water in the forepeak, number one hold, number two hold, mail room, boiler room number six, boiler room number five. What did this add up to? Quote, Andrews quietly explained, the Titanic could float with any two of her 16 watertight compartments flooded. She could float with any three of her first five compartments flooded. She could even float with all f- with her first four compartments gone. But no matter how they sliced it, she could not float with all of her first five compartments full. The bulkhead between the fifth and sixth compartments went only as high as E-deck. If the first five compartments were flooded... The bow would sink so low that water in the fifth compartment must overflow into the sixth. When this was full, it would overflow into the seventh and so on. It was a mathematical certainty, pure and simple. There was no way out. So So, they're doing this in their heads, but they're like, oh, there's no way to, to fix this. This is, we're screwed. So about those lifeboats. Yeah. Shipbuilder Magazine had famously written of the Titanic in 1911, The captain may, by simply moving an electric switch, instantly close the doors throughout and make the vessel practically unsinkable. But all the switches had now been pulled, and it still hadn't changed their fate. The Titanic would sink. 
At 12.05 a.m., 25 minutes after the initial impact, Captain Smith ordered Chief Officer Wild to uncover the lifeboats, First Officer Murdoch to muster the passengers, Sixth Officer Moody to get the list of boat assignments, and Fourth Officer Boxall to wake up Second Officer Lightoller and Third Officer Pittman. The captain himself then walked about 20 yards down the port side or left-hand side of the boat deck to the wireless shack. I just want to point out, now that I know the, those first five compartments had, like, other roles, like they were full of engines and post offices and stuff, Yeah. now it makes sense that you did need doors in and out. Yeah. yeah. So in the wireless uh, station, Jack Phillips and his junior operator, Harold Bride, had barely registered any understanding of what was going on. That was soon remedied by Captain Smith, who came to tell them, quote, we've struck an, struck an iceberg and I'm having an inspection made to see what it has done to us. You better get ready to send out a call for assistance, but don't send it until I tell you. Then he left, and a few minutes later, he returned. Send the call for assistance. So at 12.15 a.m., they began to send out their pleas for help. The letters CQD, which was at the time the usual international call of distress, and it was followed by MGY, which were the call letters of the Titanic. Again and again, six times over, they repeated the signal. Unfortunately, after being rudely cut off by the Titanic earlier when they were trying to warn of ice, the Californian's uh, telegraph operator Cyril Evans had huffily closed down his machine at 11.30 p.m., leaving the telegraph station entirely around 12.15. You petty bitch! And so the Californian, only 10 miles away and by far the closest ship, didn't receive the Titanic's call of distress. This would prove to be fatal for Titanic. Crew and passengers began to be woken up by fellow crew members and stewards and told to come to the deck. Many weren't told the entire story, but some of the crew members were. Quote, Turn out, you fellows. You haven't half an hour to live. That is from Mr. Andrews. Keep it to yourselves and let no one know. The boatswain was recorded as saying. The aforementioned card game was still powering forward. It was bridge, by the way, uh, in the first class smoking lounge when a ship's officer suddenly appeared at the door. Men, get on your lifeboats. There's trouble ahead. John Hardy, second class chief steward, personally roused 20 to 24 separate cabins. Each time he threw the door open wide, shouting, everybody on deck with lifebelts on at once. Some passengers didn't want to leave their rooms, not understanding what the problem was. As Walter, Once you hear life vest. <laughs> yeah, I mean, seriously. Um, as Walter Lord put it, quote, at 12.15, it was hard to know whether to joke or to be serious, whether to chop down a door and be a hero or chop it down and get arrested. No two people seemed to have the same reaction. Some people left their rooms but bought, brought items with them. Um, a woman named Mrs. Lucian Smith had the presence of mind to grab two favorite rings. Adolf Diker uh, handed his wife a small satchel containing two gold watches, two diamond rings, a sapphire necklace, and 200 Swedish crowns. That's the heart of the ocean, it is. <laughs> and uh, one steward packed four oranges into his shirt, understanding they may be needed later that night. Mrs. Dickinson Bishop left behind $11,000 in jewelry but had her husband go back to their room to get her a muff for the cold. <laughs> Many of the first-class passengers made it up to deck quickly, but down in steerage, there was still confusion, especially since the single men and single women had been kept separate, so news traveled a lot slower. 
One girl, Catherine Gilnock, only 16, was awoken by a cute young guy who had caught her eye earlier and told some and she was told that something was wrong with the ship. Another young man, Olas Appleseth, was traveling with family and the 16-year-old daughter of a family friend who was in his care. Appleseth located the girl and his relatives, and they all made their way to the poop deck, which was the third class's designated deck area. Up on the boat deck, crewmen began to clear the 16 wooden lifeboats, eight on each side of the ship, four towards the bow, four towards the stern. And the four collapsible canvas lifeboats were also stowed on the deck. Four total or four on each side? Four total collapsibles. So um, there's 20 in total, including the collapsibles. Second Officer Lightoller, in charge of the port side, asked Chief Officer Wild permission to swing out, um, which I think is, you know, getting the lifeboats out. And Wild responded, no, wait. Uh, Lightoller finally went up to the bridge and got orders directly from Captain Smith. Yeah, he's like, what are we waiting? We, we've acknowledged the ship is sinking. What are we waiting around for? And uh, he gave Lightoller the nod and his kind of famous saying. I mean, it's been adapted for film, but he said, yes, put the women and children in and lower away. And that was kind of the, um, the thing at the time. It was said that you save women and children first when a ship's sinking. So he was kind of going by that. And he had never experienced anything like this before. So he was just sort of going by the saying. Um, and after the break, we will begin the doomed rescue operations on the deck of Titanic, ending with the ship's final descent into freezing waters and the desperate fight by those left to stay alive above the waves. I wish I could say I was looking forward to it. Yeah, it's going to be sad. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Welcome back. As we promised you, listener, it is only going to get grimmer from here. The Titanic has struck the ice, and uh, the slow descent to the bottom of the ocean has begun. The guy hasn't hit the propeller yet. That's still coming. Mm-hmm. Um, Carrie, uh, I, I don't know. I'm trying to keep it lighthearted. I, let's, let's get into these, uh, I assume, very sad stories. Yeah. So at this point, Captain Smith has finally ordered that women and children should be prioritized on lifeboats, and the first boats were finally being loaded. Even women and children, though, were not excited to get into the lifeboats. It felt safer to be on the ship than these rickety little boats. Yeah, it's, it's big. Yeah. Many people were being difficult when implored by the crew to get into the boats, on the starboard side, J. Bruce Ismay rushed from boat to boat, urging the men to hurry. There's no time to lose, he urged third officer Pittman, who was working on boat five. Pittman shrugged him off. He didn't know Ismay and had no time for an officious stranger in carpet slippers. Hmm. People letting their mistrust of authority put them at health risks. I'm trying to think if we've <laughs> seen anything like that recently. Mm-hmm. Ismay told him to load the boat with women and children. And Pittman responded, I await the commander's orders. But suddenly it dawned on him that this stranger might be, I don't know, the owner of the boat, pretty much. 
Um, so he eased down to the deck. He told Captain Smith what he he thought that this, the sky was J. Bruce Ismay um, and asked what he should do. Like, should he listen to Ismay? And Smith answered, carry on. So Officer Pittman jumped uh, back to the lifeboat. And Wait, is that an answer? Is that Does that mean carry on with what you're doing or carry on doing what you asked about, think, which is listening to I think to Ismay. Smith is very overwhelmed at this point. So he's just sure, kind of uh, like, yeah, whatever. Sure, whatever you need. So uh, Pittman returned to lifeboat five and he jumped in and called, come along, ladies. And so some finally edged forward. Miss Helen Ostby, Miss F.M. Warren, Mrs. Washington Dodge and her five-year-old son, a young stewardess. And when no more women would go alone, a few couples were allowed, then a few single men. And on the starboard side, this was the rule all evening, women first, but men if there was still room. But things were different on the port side. <laughs> At lifeboat number seven, movie actress Dorothy Gibson and her mother jumped into First Officer Murdoch's boat and persuaded their bridge companions William Sloper and Fred Seward to join. Others trickled into the boat until there were about 19 or 20 people inside. And then at around 12.45 a.m., Murdoch waved the boat on to be lowered, feeling like he could not wait any longer. How many people are these boats supposed to hold? This boat went down um, barely a third filled to capacity. So like 60 people. Yes. The the biggest boats, um, the standard was 65. And it was weighed with the the weight of 65 men in belfast or whatever he right, says right, right, right. so how, it's all it, it should have been at like 70 people what time is it at this point and how close are we to the like final sink uh 12 45 so we're about an hour after the first collision and um a little over an hour away from the final sink. Yeah, I, you've got a little time, man. <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't want to be the first lifeboat guy to jump the gun. Yeah. Thomas Andrews ran around the ship, doing his best to assist. Quote, A charming, dynamic man. He was everywhere, helping everyone. And people looked to him. He handled them differently, depending on what he thought of them. He told garrulous Stewart Johnson that everything would be all right. He told Mr. and Mrs. Albert Dick, his casual dinner companions... She is torn to bits below, but she will not sink if her bulk- bulkheads hold. Um, not to get stuck on this, but but still, with the guy uh, lowering the lifeboat, or I don't want this to be lost. You, every crew member knows that there's not enough boats for all the passengers on the ship. Yes, and so if you drop, he's panicking. The, yeah, but if you drop, you you are killing forty people. Yeah. Right. Anyway. Yeah. He told, uh, Andrews told stewardess Mary Sloan, it is very serious, but keep the bad news quiet for fear of panic. He told John B. Thayer, whom he trusted implicitly, that he didn't give the ship much over an hour to live, and he was correct. And he implored one stewardess, quote, put your life belt on, let the passenger see you. Well, if you value your life, put it on. The ship's band began to play ragtime music in the first-class lounge in a bid to calm and entertain the passengers. The band included bandmaster and violinist Wallace Henry Hartley, pianist Theodore Braley, bassist Fred Clark, violinists Jock Hume and George Kreens, and cellists Roger Bricou, uh, Percy Taylor, and John Wesley Woodward. Uh, well, you know what? That that cello is going to serve as a nice flotation device once you uh, once you have to drop into the drink. So. Well, you say that, Sean, but none of the men in the band would survive the night. 
though Hartley's violin would eventually be recovered with his body, and it was most recently auctioned off in 2013 for $1.6 million. Recovered from the bottom? No, from his, with his body. Right. But was it like floating on top or was it? No, it was in his suitcase, which was with his body, which was floating. Okay. At the telegraph station, responses were beginning to come into the distress call. The Carpathia picked up the signal and advised the captain who turned the ship in the Titanic's direction. And I'm going, I always confused this as a kid when I was, you know, learning all my facts. The Carpathia is the one who answered. The Californian is the one who's close by and doesn't answer. So the Carpathia turns to come toward the Titanic, but it was 58 miles away. But it was moving as quickly as it could. Jack Phillips messaged the ship, the Frankfurt, which was 150 miles away. Are you coming to, your, to our assistance? The response, what is the matter with you? Phillips's reply, tell your captain to come to our help. We are on the ice. The Olympic itself, which was at sea, uh, the Titanic's sister ship, was 500 miles away, but incredibly powerful and could handle a major rescue job. Jack Phillips kept in touch with the Olympics operator while urging on nearer ships. Definitely bring the Olympic. This is great water for ships this size. We just <laughs> proved it. Then Harold Bride had an idea. They had been using the distress call CQD, but an international convention had just agreed to use the letters SOS instead, as they were easier for even amateurs to understand. So Bride suggested that they try SOS, quote, Send SOS. It's the new call, and it may be your last chance to send it. It's all the rage with the kids. Mm-hmm. And so the Titanic became the first ocean liner to flash SOS in distress. However, none of the ships that it was able to contact were close enough. Not as close as the steamer 4th Officer Boxall could clearly make out sitting 10 miles away. So it was time to fire the rockets. And the passengers finally began to understand that they were in serious trouble at this point if they hadn't already, because the rockets meant that they were in dire enough danger that Titanic was pleading for help from any ships close enough to sea. Hurried goodbyes began on the deck. Quote, it's all right, little girl, called Dan Marvin to his new bride. You go and I'll stay a while. He blew her a kiss as she entered the boat. I'll see you later, Adolf Diker smiled as he helped Mrs. Diker across the gunwale. Be brave, no matter what happens, be brave, Dr. W.T. Minahan told Mrs. Minahan as he stepped back with the other man. Mr. Turrell Cavendish said nothing to Mrs. Cavendish, just a kiss, a long look, another kiss, and he disappeared into the crowd. Some women... <laughs> this is really sad. Um... Some women refused to go and had to be forced on by their husbands or crewmen if they could be at all. Ida Strauss, wife of Isidore, the owner of Macy's, flatly declined. I've always stayed with my husband, so why should I leave him now? And they would sit together on a pair of deck chairs as the ship sank. Many other men would assist women and children they barely knew or had just met on the voyage. Quote, Mrs. William T. Graham, 19-year-old Margaret, and her governess, Miss Schutz, were helped onto boat eight by Howard Case, London manager of Vacuum Oil, and young Washington Augustus Roebling, the steel heir who was striking out on his own as manager of the Mercer Automobile Works in Trenton, New Jersey. As number eight dropped into the sea, Mrs. Graham watched Case, leaning against the rail, light a cigarette, and wave goodbye. Thomas Andrews raced from lifeboat to lifeboat, 
Quote, ladies, you must get in at once. There is not a moment to lose. You cannot pick and choose your boat. Don't hesitate. Get in, get in. One girl wanting to climb into number eight suddenly cried, cried out, I've forgotten Jack's photograph and must get it. Everybody protested, but she darted away. To get a picture of Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, in a moment, she reappeared with the picture and was rushed into the boat. One after the other, each boat was quickly dropped into the sea. Number six at 12.55 a.m., number three at one, number eight at one ten, and so on. Were these boats all full? Well, number one, which had a capacity of 40 persons, was lowered with only 12 people. Meanwhile, those in the lower decks, especially steerage, were fighting their way up the long trip from third class to the boat deck. Most of the crew were occupied up top with the lifeboats, and many passengers in the lower classes didn't get guidance on what to do in any sort of timely fashion. Some barriers were still up between their quarters and the rest of the ship, Though it's not like a, a dastardly thing like the Titanic movie shows. Right. Well, even in that movie, we might just be, as the audience, misinterpreting. Oh, yeah. It is dastardly when, like, the guard is standing yeah, with a gun turn next around. to the, yeah. No, like, they were just kind of, I think they like, were, the, the barriers were put up at the end of the night you know, when everyone went to sleep and they just hadn't been opened. Right. I mean, it is still shit. It's, it's terrible. It's what sh- happened to third class is, is horrific. Well, no, but the barriers in general are, oh, yeah, obviously. are offensive to begin with. But Yeah. Third class steward John Edward Hart struggled to get groups of steerage passengers from E-deck to the boat deck. And once he got them to lifeboat number eight, many would quickly jump out and attempt to get back onto the ship into the warmth. He only had the time to complete the trek two or three times before it was already 1.30 a.m., and Murdoch ordered him into the departing lifeboat number 15. Quote, For every steerage passenger who found an escape, hundreds milled aimlessly around the forward well deck, the after poop deck, or the foot of the E deck staircase. Some, some stayed in their cabins. That's where Mary Agatha Glynn and four discouraged roommates were found by young Martin Gallagher. He quickly escorted them to boat 13 and stepped back on the deck again. Others turned to prayer. When steerage passenger Gus Cohen passed the third-class dining saloon about an hour after the crash, he saw quite a number gathered there, many with rosaries in their hands. From the start of the whole business, the staff of the first-class a la carte restaurant had an incredibly difficult time to... Is it the Ritz? Uh, yes, because they were subjects of racism, being that they were mostly like French or, or French refugees, and... Um, they were dealing with the issue that they were neither official Titanic crew nor passengers, but employees of the restaurant itself. So they didn't really have status on the ship. Restaurant manager Gotti, his chef and the chef's assistant, Paul Mogwe, were the only ones who made it onto the boat deck of anyone who worked in the restaurant. And they only got through because they happened to be in civilian clothes. So the crew thought they were passengers. Maugay would end up jumping 10 feet into a departing lifeboat. Someone on a lower deck attempted to drag him out, but he squirmed free and remained. Why would you do that? It's like this weird class thing that still remained even as everyone's dying, you know? It's like, yeah, let, let, them, let them try to live. What do you mean? Like, I'm not going to get on this boat either way, but let me stop this Frenchman from getting there? <laughs> yeah, it's so stupid. 
Third-class passenger Daniel Buckley had a woman's shawl put over him by Mrs. Astor in his recollection, and this lame disguise ensured him a position on one of the last boats. Quote, another young man, no more than a boy, wasn't as lucky. Fifth Officer Lowe caught him under a seat in number 14, begging that he wouldn't take up much room. Lowe drew his gun, but the boy only pleaded harder. Then Lowe changed tactics, told him to be a man, and somehow got him out. It's just horrible. Um, by 1.30 a.m., most of the boats had departed the main ship, and one by one they rode away from the Titanic, some making their way for the mysterious steamer ship whose lights shone in the distance. They still had no re response from the steamer, the Californian, at the telegraph station. Phillips and Bride were still in there at 1.25, trying to explain the situation to the Olympic, the Frankfurt, and all the others. Somebody has to be on duty on that ship in some way, right? Why didn't they see the rockets? There's, they, they, they did. They did. We'll, we'll get to the rockets. Um, they, they tried to do some like Morse code with lanterns from that ship to this ship, but it didn't really, they didn't really get a response. And so they were like, oh, I don't know. I don't know what's going on over there. They did Morse code with lanterns? Yeah, but it's like they couldn't miles. read it. Like it, it was just bad. It's 10 miles. Just take a trip. Yeah. At 1.45, Phillips begged the Carpathia, come as quickly as possible, old man, engine room filling up to the boilers. The few remaining lifeboats were being rushed, particularly by men, and Lowe was forced to shoot his gun three times along the side of the ship, shouting, if anyone tries that, this is what he'll get. Did anyone actually get shot like in the movie? No. As far as we know, no one got shot and no one killed themselves on the deck. It's a very dramatic moment that, that yes. Cameron inserted there. Yes. So it's it's vaguely based on real life, but it's also like a different character that doesn't in the movie. And Close by, J. Bruce Ismay was assisting collapsible boat C in loading until finally climbing in himself just before it was lowered. And this is going to come up in episode three when we talk about the aftermath and how people perceive him saving himself. Reverend Robert J. Bateman of Jacksonville stood outside the boat watching his sister-in-law, Mrs. Ida Ball, being lowered. If I don't meet you again in this world, he called, I will in the next. As the boat descended, he took off his necktie and tossed it to her as a keepsake. Millionaire Benjamin Guggenheim told one departing woman, If anything should happen to me, tell my wife I've done my best in doing my duty. Guggenheim was last seen with his secretary, shed of his life belt and sweater, and wearing elegant evening clothes. We've dressed in our best, he explained, and are prepared to go down like gentlemen. The water had now risen to sea deck and was climbing fast. Oh, that guy is in the movie. Yes. He's the one that is sitting in the stairwell with his terrified looking butler as the water's rushing in. So at this point, there were only two more boats left. Number four uh, was the first, which descended around 1.55 a.m. with Mrs. Astor inside. John Jacob Astor had asked if he could join her. And this is the most, this is the richest guy in the boat. Um, and he said that she was in a delicate condition. So she was likely pregnant. However, Officer Lightoller, who refused to have any men, uh, said, no men allowed in these boats until the women are loaded first. And he knew who Astor was. So he, he would even refuse him. Only one man would be sent through by Lightoller the entire night a passenger who had yachting experience and who was needed on a departing boat that only had one crew member on board. 
A Mr. Arthur Ryerson gave his own life belt to his maid, Victorine, as she prepared to to board a boat with Mrs. Ryerson and her son, Jack. Lightoller called out, that boy can't go, about Jack. But Mr. Ryerson protested, of course that that boy goes with his mother. He's only 13. Yeah, he's children. (laughs) So Jack was allowed to pass. But Lightoller grumbled, no more boys. No more boys! Yeah. At this point, there was only one boat left and only 47 seats available on that boat. Lightoller had the crew lock arms around the boat in a circle. This was collapsible boat D, and they were to only allow women through. That is the smallest amount of power I've ever seen go to someone's head. (laughs) At 2.05 a.m., the final lifeboat D was lowered into the water only feet away now. And so a strange calm came over the Titanic as those still on board waited for the inevitable. At 2.05, Captain Smith entered the telegraph station for the last time, saying, Men, you have done your full duty. You can do no more. Abandon your cabin. Now it's every man for himself. Phillips looked up for a second, then bent over the set once more. Captain Smith tried again. You look out for yourselves. I I release you. And then he took a pause and added softly, That's the way of it at this kind of time. Phillips, however, kept on working while Bride gathered papers. Smith returned to the boat deck and kept notifying crew members he saw. He said, every man for himself, do your best for the women and children, look out for yourselves, things like that. Then he walked back over to the bridge. Some people began to jump into the water, and a few were picked up by nearby lifeboats. One passenger, Frederick Hoyt, had helped his wife into collapsible D, then jumped off the ship and swam to where he thought the boat might pass. He guessed correctly, and after a few minutes, D was able to haul him in, soaked through and freezing. At 2.10, Thomas Andrews was spotted alone in the first-class smoking room, his life belt thrown uselessly onto a card table, his arms folded over his chest, and a stunned look on his face. Open bar now. Yeah. He refused to try and even attempt to escape. Quote, for Isidore Strauss, there was the irony of his recently completed will. A special paragraph urged Mrs. Strauss to be a little selfish. Don't always think only of others. Through the years, she had been so self-sacrificing that he especially wanted her to enjoy life after he was gone. Now the very qualities he admired so much meant he could never have his wish. So, obviously they died together. On the deck chairs. Yeah. The water made its way up the A-deck companionway and began to wash over the bridge. Phillips and Bride at this time finally abandoned their post but were separated, while Bride eventually made his way onto collapsible boat B, along with Lightoller. Phillips would not be so lucky, and he did drown or die. You know, we, we don't know how he died. Um, as the water gushed over the boat deck, the band stopped playing cheery ragtime and began either the Episcopal hymn Autumn or the song Nearer My God to, D- to Thee. Um, there is some debate over which one. A wave was described as taking over the ship, which was likely the boat itself shifting into its vertical position before it fully sank. And we see that, obviously, in the film Titanic. Um, Some people were caught in the suction or taken away by this wave. Others managed to make it to the stern. Some jumped at this point with the water rushing up toward them, now just 10, 8, 5 feet below, coming closer. The music ended as the ship became completely vertical, the instruments never to be heard again. 
The lights went out, flashed on again, and then went out for good. The forward funnel toppled over, crushing dozens beneath it in the swirling sea. No one really knows what happened to oh, Captain that's, Smith. That's where Fabrizio died. That's Fabrizio, yes. No one really knows what happened to Captain Smith. Uh, quote, people later said he shot himself, but there's not a shred of evidence. Just before the end, steward Edward Brown saw him walk on the bridge, still holding his megaphone. A minute later, trimmer Hemmings wandered onto the bridge and found it empty. After the Titanic sank, fireman Harry Sr. saw him in the water holding a child. Pieced together, this picture, far more than suicide, fits the kind of fighter who once said, quote, in a way, a certain amount of wonder never leaves me, especially as I observe from the bridge a vessel plunging up and down in the trough of the sea, fighting her way through and over great waves. A man never outgrows that. And he did go down with his ship, which was kind of a, another saying or tradition at the time, a captain going down with their ship. Those in the boats watched as the ship sank vertically down into the water, and Officer, Officer Pittman called the time of final sinking, when it fully went into the sea uh, as 2.20 a.m. Ten miles away on the Californian, crew members had been watching this massive ship slowly disappear into the water. Captain Stanley Lord, commander of the Californian, was only notified of the distress rockets, I mean, this seems crazy, around 2.05. So this is 15 minutes before the, the ship goes fully underwater. And at least half an hour after they fire the rockets. Prob yes, at least beginning, yeah. Were they all white rockets, he said. Yes, they were. So he thought that these, therefore, might be company rockets intended to identify ships of the same company to each other. As opposed to red rockets? Uh, yeah, like emergency distress rockets. Maybe this is all they had. I don't know. Lord rolled over and went back to sleep. Well, at this point, his, don't his crewmen also say, also, the boat's getting smaller? <sighs> At 2.40, the captain was again notified of the situation with the added detail that the ship was now gone. Um, but this notification was given through a speaking tube, so it's unsure if the captain heard it at all or if he was just asleep, maybe. Let's knock on the door. Let's wake him up. And throughout the whole night, no one even attempted to wake wireless operator uh, Cyril Evans to try and contact the mysterious rocket-firing ship nearby. So... They could have just been like, hey, can you send a message over to whoever that is and see? No one did that. This is hideous. Yeah. It's, it's really bad. It's really bad. Once the ship was completely submerged, it looked much like depicted in the film. Hundreds of people were thrashing in the water, and the area was also littered with crates, deck chairs, planks, and other rubbish. The temperature of the water was 28 degrees Fahrenheit which is well below freezing. Officer Lightoller would later recall that it felt like a thousand knives driven into his body when he touched it. Oh, James Cameron stole that line of dialogue. There's a lot that is directly taken from these accounts in the film. He, he got a lot right, surprisingly. Not the stars. Not the stars. Some swimmers were able to make their way to uh, right and enter the collapsible boats A and B, which were forced to paddle away as they began to sink into the water under the weight of way too many men. So these had too many guys in them. The screams of hundreds filtered in from the water, and to one man, 5th Officer Lowe, these screams persuaded him to turn around and help. So that's who we see in the movie going back to get Rose. Officer Lowe rounded up boats 10, 12, 4, 14, and collapsible D after leaving the Titanic 
and all five had been tied together. He reorganized this flotilla for rescue, sending the passengers into four boats and then rounding up volunteers to row back with him for rescuing in number 14. By the time he was able to make it back to the main wreckage, it was after 3 a.m. and it had gotten deathly quiet. There were still a few alive in the water and able to be rescued. Steward John Stewart, first-class passenger W.F. Hoyt, a Japanese steerage passenger that had lashed himself to a floating door. All told, they only found four people still alive to rescue, and Hoyt died within the hour. In other boats, some other initial survivors would freeze to death and fall overboard, never to be seen again. Third officer Pittman wanted to go back, but many passengers on his boat protested, begging them not to turn around and risk all of their lives. Oh, this is the Kathy Bates boat. Uh, no, that's coming up. But it, it was all, it was similar on a lot of the boats. Everyone's a piece of shit in this story. Yeah. Except for the people who aren't. Exactly. For the next hour, his boat would rock gently in the water, 40 passengers on a boat capacity of 65, listening to dozens nearby drown and freeze to death. The same happened with boat two. The ladies in boat six, however, tried to demand their boat turn around, and this included Mrs. Molly Brown, who history knows now as the unsinkable Molly Brown. However, quartermaster Hitchens, in charge of lifeboat number two, refused. Quote, in boat after boat, the story was the same. A timid suggestion, a stronger refusal, nothing done. Of 1,600 people who went down on the Titanic, only 13 were picked up by 18 boats hovering nearby. The boats rowed or drifted basically together over a radius of four or five miles, with many women taking up oars themselves because they were the bulk of the passengers on the lifeboats. Mrs. John B. Thayer rowed for five hours in water up to her shins in number four. Uh, and in number two, um, the down but not out Molly Brown organized the women uh, for doing like two to an oar. And, um, and she took an oar herself, trying to navigate to the steamer on the horizon that had failed to come to their rescue on its own. And that's how she got her name, the unsinkable Molly Brown. But it was useless, because as the first rays of dawn sunlight finally illuminated the horizon, Captain Lord on the Californian decided to navigate through the ice field and keep heading on its way to Boston. No! He's literally going away from the lifeboats? Well, he wanted to. An officer asked, aren't you going to check on that ship to the south? Lord replied, no, I don't think so. She's not making any signals now. At 5.40 a.m., the Californian finally got the news the Titanic had sunk because, only because the telegraph station had been started up again. And so it so this, this Oh, thank God this guy had his breakfast and yes. got back to work. And so the, it finally started its engines to head for the ship's last position. At 4 a.m., the Carpathia finally made it to the outskirts of the wreckage. So this is the boat that was coming from 58 miles away. And it began to load those on each lifeboat that it came across onto the ship. By 8.30, the last boat, number 12, finally began to unload its passengers onto the Carpathia. Now the Californian was standing by, uh, and finally, so um, the Carpathia decided to make its way to New York, now loaded with over 700 unexpected extra passengers. And then the Californian went, oh, where are they going? We'll follow them. <laughs> I guess. And there was no one else alive in the water to be rescued at this point. They checked. Many priceless belongings were lost in the sinking, including a jewel-encrusted edition of the Rubiat, 
a of Omar Kayom. Yes, that's a, a major plot point, Caroline, in Titanic: Journey Out of Time. Mm-hmm. There was a 1912 Renault Type CB Coupe de Ville, four cases of opium, a handwritten manuscript by Joseph Conrad, and dozens of pieces of art, jewelry, and other valuables. Yeah, his name is Pablo something. He'll <laughs> never amount to a thing. But most importantly, Carrie. That movie gets a lot right, but there's some there's some terrible script in there. <laughs> I, I well okay, we'll talk about it. Most importantly, all in all, out of two thousand two hundred and eight people on board the Titanic, only seven hundred and twelve survived. Most of those being women and children. In total, including the crew, one hundred and ten women perished, along with fifty six children and 1,357 men. 62% of first-class passengers survived, which was by far the highest total, followed by 43% of second-class and just 25% of steerage and 23% of the staff and crew. Of the 12 dogs that were on Titanic, mostly pets of first-class passengers, only three survived, two Pomeranians and a Pekingese, which had been small enough to be cradled in their owner's arms as they boarded lifeboats. A pig would just make it. I I don't even want to think about art. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to think about what I would do. You would have to get on the boat with pig. That's I don't, obvious. That's like the hard. That's that's really like the hardest thing to think about in this. Um, women don't get a lot of advantages, right? But they were obviously very uh, favored in this situation. Women and children for saving. And just the idea of having to leave you, I don't know if I, I don't know what I would do. I don't know if I could do it. You'd, you'd make me. Yeah, I'd throw you my necktie and uh, send you on your way. <laughs> yeah, but um, it's, it's just terribly sad. In the next episode, we'll discuss the aftermath of this massive tragedy, as well as the conspiracy theories and mysteries that popped up after the fact. And that's uh, that's the night uh, the Titanic sank, Sean. Oh, my God. Um, crushing. Crushing, crushing stories. It's, all, it's all, the, all the personal stories are the things that, look, the broad strokes of this narrative, even the not enough boats, even the lowering the boats half full, even the five compartments, maybe. Um, people will know a lot of the broad strokes of this story. Yeah. But those personal anecdotes are crushing and really... And there are more. There, there are ones with, you know, husbands telling their wives, oh, I'll get the next one, you know, knowing that they won't. Um, it's horrible. It's, it's you know, it, it seems so far away, but then you put yourself in that situation, you put yourself in that mindset, and it seems closer than you would, you could possibly understand, you know. So do you want to talk shop on the movie or is that next week? Let's let's do that next week. I okay. think that's kind of an aftermathy sort of thing. Yeah, all right. Um so I'll uh for now I'll only say it maybe could have used an editor. <laughs> I thought it was well edited. Titanic? Yes, the film. Yeah, all three and a half hours of it. Well, it's an epic, Sean. Do you think Lawrence of Arabia needed an editor? That's what I thought. Do you really want? Yes. (laughs) 
You might be surprised to know that not all serial killers are straight, cisgender white men, and the victims of true crime are not a monolith either. She's Wendy, and I'm Beth, and together we host Fruit Loop Serial Killers of Color, a true crime podcast. Together we take deep dives into the true crime stories about marginalized and minoritized perps and victims that often go untold. We also provide the context and nuance that these stories deserve. At Fruit Loops, we're serving up true crime with a side of history, society, culture, and some fun. Listen to Fruit Loop Serial Killers of Color on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This was kind of a thick episode this week, so we're not doing news because next time we'll be discussing the various predictions that have been made for 2023, from Nostradamus to blind mystic Baba Vanga to that one British lady that reads asparagus like tea leaves. And, uh, and we'll also look at their predictions from last year and see if any came true. I predict that lady's got some LEP. I think, I think that's probably correct. <laughs> And that's it for this episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ain't It Scary. And check out our website at ain'titscary.com. You can support the show by supporting our sponsors and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash ain'titscary. You can call us and leave a message at our Google Voice number, 203-666-5529. We have a couple of voicemails uh, waiting to be shared. So we'll do that next week. And please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and also on Spotify. We'll be forever grateful. We certainly will. And special thanks to those already joining us on Patreon. Our top-tier patrons are Nate Curtis, Sean O'Donnell, Jared Chamberlain, Maria Ferrante, Robin McCabe, Comfy Mike, Alex Nakudis, Ryan Regan, Christy Atchison, Ira, Kate Pope, Haley, and... Welcome to our newest patron, Jamie Berg. Jamie, you're part of the Scary Squad, whether you like it or not. And we love you. <laughs> Welcome, Jamie. And thanks to all of our other patrons. See you next Thursday. Show created by Sean and Carrie McCabe. Music by Kyle Ryan. You can find Kyle at his YouTube channel, Music is a Verb. Ain't It Scary has been brought to you by Killer Podcasts and is a production of Longboy Media. <laughs> On the morning of August 1st, 1966... Shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify and all the usual suspects.